When you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of the things that you discover quickly is that regardless of the situation, Jesus never seems to be caught off guard, right? You've noticed that. We read about these uh, situations where people, you know, they try to trap Jesus in an argument or, you know, put Jesus in some kind of a, you know, crazy, unwinnable scenario. And yet over and over, it's clear that Jesus knows exactly what they're doing and, and he isn't surprised by any of it. I'm sure you've noticed the exact same thing. But see, that realization, it got me thinking. I wonder if there is anything that takes Jesus by surprise. And so a number of years ago, as I first started to think about that question, and as I began to actually read the Gospels thinking about that question, what we discover and what I discovered is that there are, in fact, two times in the New Testament where we're told that Jesus was amazed. And what's fascinating is that both of those events uh, that Jesus is surprised by, he's surprised by the very same thing. And perhaps what's most surprising is the thing that Jesus is surprised by is faith. Open up your Bibles and turn into them to Matthew chapter 8. Um, we're going to begin looking today at verse 1. Now, there's plenty of times in the scriptures where we read something and people are amazed by what Jesus does, but this time Jesus is amazed by something somebody else does. And perhaps what's most interesting is what he's amazed by is not some great act of obedience. That's not what Jesus finds fascinating. Matthew tells us in the beginning of verse 1, he says that when Jesus came down from the mountainside, Large crowds followed him, and a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And so this guy with leprosy, he falls down in front of Jesus and he says, okay, I don't know if you'll do it or not, but Jesus, I believe you can if you want to. So would you make me clean? And verse 3 tells us that Jesus, he reach out, reaches out his hand and he touches the man and he says, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the man is cured of his leprosy, which is, in fact, pretty amazing. And then Matthew continues in verse 5, and he tells us that when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him. Now, you know what a centurion is. A centurion is a Roman soldier, like an officer, who has about 100 other soldiers under their command. So this centurion, he comes to Jesus, and he asks Jesus for help. Right, and so picture this, Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through town and all of a sudden this, this Roman centurion, right, likely with a number of the soldiers who are under his command, they show up in front of Jesus and his disciples and everyone watching this event is thinking, okay, what in the world did Jesus do now and what are these guys going to do to Jesus, right? Because remember, these are the bad guys. These are the invaders. These are the people you hide your valuables from. I mean, these are the people you hide your children from. These are the people that, that say, okay, you know, I want you to come with me, and then nobody ever sees that person again. And, and Matthew tells us that this guy walks right up to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, I need you to do me a favor. Right? Verse 6 tells us this. He says, Lord, my servant lies at home, paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Right, to which Jesus' disciples are probably thinking, okay, you know what, well, good. We hope that whatever he's got, it's contagious. And, and we hope that, you know what, you and all of your hundred men get it, and we hope they spread it all throughout the, the Roman army. I mean, come on, Jesus, let, let's go and help some Jewish people. But Jesus responds to the centurion by saying something fascinating. He says, okay, well, then I'll go, and I'll heal him. 
And Jesus' disciples are thinking, okay, wait a minute, Jesus, you can't. I mean, Jesus, you can't start helping the Romans. I mean, the Jewish leaders, they already don't like us. And if you start running around and helping the Romans, I mean, it is over for us. But before the disciples can object, the centurion himself responds in verse 8. And listen to what he says. He says, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Right? In other words, you say, okay, Jesus, listen, I've been watching you. And see, I don't need you to come home with me. I think that if you, you know, just from right here uh, on the other side of town, I think that you have the power and I think you can heal my servant from here. Right? And immediately everyone is silent and they're like, okay, did this guy really just say that? And then listen to his explanation of why he believes what he just said. This is so important. He says this in verse 9. For I myself am a man under authority. Right? And the implication is this. Don't miss this. Jesus, you and I, we actually have something in common. Because see, Jesus, there are a hundred guys that do whatever I say, and they never question my orders. And I realize the only reason they do what I say is because I represent Rome. And see, Rome is way bigger than just me. And Jesus, I've been watching you. And see, you... You command illness, and illness obeys you. And see, Jesus, if these hundred guys do what I say because I represent Rome, and sickness and death obey you, and they do what you say, then obviously you're representing somebody bigger than just you. And so, Jesus, what we have in common is we're both under authority because, see, I get my way because I'm under the authority of Rome. And I don't know whose authority you're under, but whoever it is is way bigger than just you. So you do not need to come to my little house just to heal my servant. Whoever you represent, Jesus, I believe they can heal my servant from wherever they are. See, this is amazing. This centurion saw something about Jesus that no one else saw. And so he says to Jesus, For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me, just like you have illness and death under you. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And then listen to this next verse. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed, right? He was astonished. He was astounded and had nothing to do with anyone's act of obedience. Instead, it has to do with this incredible amount of faith. Jesus is astounded because of somebody's great faith and his great confidence in him because somebody realized, okay, wait a minute. You might be the one that I see, but there is somebody that is way bigger than you that is working through you that I can't see. And so, Jesus, I put my confidence in you because of who you represent. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And he said to all of those who were following him, Truly, right, truly, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I mean, this is a guy who, for all we know, still worshiped Zeus. Right? He didn't know the Ten Commandments. He had never been to the temple. I mean, he couldn't even get into the temple. He, he didn't speak the language. But he recognized that Jesus represented someone bigger than Jesus. He recognized that somehow Jesus was connected to the one who had power, 
the, the power over illness, the power over life, the power over death. And so as you read the, the Gospels, here's what we discover. The thing that Jesus was constantly talking about, right? The thing that Jesus wanted most for those people who, who were following him, that was that same kind of amazing faith. In other words, Jesus wanted people to live their lives as if their heavenly father, his father, could be trusted. He, he wanted people to respond to the circumstances of life as if God was with them, as if God loved them, as if God cared for them. He wanted them to respond to all the randomness and all the unpredictability of life in this world, of circumstances in this world, as if God could be trusted. He wanted them to respond to all the randomness and unpredictability of life as if God were present. In fact, at the end of his ministry, we discover that Jesus wants those of us who are his followers to respond to the circumstances of life as if God is in us. And see, that's why when the people around Jesus would respond in a way that was, was contrary to that, Jesus would always ask that very same question. He would always say to them, okay, what, what is it that happened to your faith? And see, this is so important because Jesus never tells anyone to have faith in faith. He says, no, I want you to live as if God is really God, that he is who he says he is and that he'll do what he's promised to do, that he loves you and that he cares for you. And so I want you to respond, Jesus would say, to people and to circumstances and to the world with that kind of faith. See, this is what Jesus wants for you and what he wants for me. Because your faith and your confidence in God is what in fact matters most to Jesus. Now, maybe that's a new idea for you. Or maybe that idea isn't new because you've heard it before, but for you, maybe the question has always been why, right? Why? Why in the world does, does God care about what I believe about him? I mean, of all the things that God could possibly be most interested in, right? What in the world makes my faith the thing he's most interested in? And what we discover when we read through the, the pages of Scripture and we're introduced to the very first people, is that Adam and Eve's relationship with God, it broke over the issue of faith. They decided that God couldn't be trusted, right? That the break between God and humanity, it wasn't simply a matter of disobedience. It wasn't like God gave them a to-do list and then you know they did three out of the four things on the list that God asked them to do. And so God says, okay, well, because you didn't do everything I asked, now you have to leave, right? That's not what happened. The thing that broke the relationship between God and humanity was humanity's refusal to trust God. God, you're withholding something good from, from me, so therefore you can't be trusted. The relationship break between God and humanity, it happened over the issue of trust, and God has been on a quest to re-engage with humanity at the level of trust ever since. That's why when we come to the New Testament, we shouldn't be surprised to find that the message of Jesus is, I want you to put your trust in me because I'm trying to reestablish a relationship between you and your heavenly father. That's why you hear us as pastors all the time say that the thing that we want for you more than anything else in the world is for you to place your faith, your trust, 
in Jesus as your Savior because listen, just as a lack of faith is what broke the relationship with God, an expression of faith is what restores it. And so throughout the New Testament, I mean, you, you read it for yourself. What is it that God's after? He wants our faith. He wants our trust. And the way you begin or re-begin a relationship with God is simply by believing or trusting him, not by doing something, because again, and you know this, the best thing that can happen in your marriage, right? It's incredible trust, isn't it? The best thing that can happen in a relationship between a parent and child, incredible trust. The best relationships in any area of life, they are always, always, always characterized by amazing levels of trust. And the very same thing is true in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. In fact, isn't it true that if the only reason you're watching today is because someone asked you to watch with them or, or maybe somebody has been bugging you and so you know, you're doing this to kind of be polite and get them off your back for a little while. I mean, for those of you who would say, okay, I don't, you know, I don't believe in God or I'm not sure about the whole Jesus thing or I'm just you know, not a church person. I mean, isn't it true that the main issue for you if, you, if you really get right down to it, I mean, the issue isn't really obedience, is it? No, the issue is, okay, do I really trust? Can I really place my faith and my trust in God? And maybe the tension for you is, okay, I want to, but I'm not there yet. I mean, I want to, but I'm not sure yet. And see, if, if I were to ask you and maybe, you know, press a little bit, okay, what does, you know, not there yet mean? I think for you it would come down to an issue of trust. An issue of, of, I'm just not sure that I have that much confidence in God. So what is God trying to do? He's trying to grow your faith. He's trying to make it big. He's trying to make it huge because it's the essence of relationship. And see, don't miss this. More than God wants your obedience and more than God wants you to know a bunch of stuff about him, your Heavenly Father, like anyone else, wants a relationship with you characterized by I trust you. I don't always understand you, but I trust you. You don't always answer my prayers the way I want you to, but I trust you. Life doesn't always go my way, but I know you're on my side. So I trust you. And so throughout his ministry, Jesus teaches us not to believe in belief or have faith in faith or think of faith like you know, some kind of a mystical rabbit's foot, but that we can actually put our trust in God because he is our Heavenly Father and he can be trusted. And so that means that spiritual maturity is really faith maturity. That spiritual growth is about faith growth. And so as a church, we want to see faith grow. We want to see people with no faith have a little. And we want to see those people with a little faith have more. And we want to see people with a whole lot of faith have even more. Because a growing relationship with God is like a growing relationship with anyone. It is a growth of trust. Now, another aspect of this that maybe you've never really thought much about, but might in fact help you, especially as you think about your own spiritual journey, is that faith, it looks different at different stages of life. But at every stage of life, there is in fact a need for trust in God. But that trust looks and feels different at the different ages and stages of life. Because there's 14-year-old faith. right? 14-year-old faith is where everyone else is cheating in school. But there's the 14-year-old who believes, okay, that's not the right thing to do. And so they're wondering, 
you know, God, can I, can I really trust you with my future? Can I trust you with my grades? Can I trust you with my test scores if I do the right thing and I don't cheat? See, that's 14-year-old faith being challenged. And then there's young adult and single adult faith because suddenly you don't know anyone and everyone you meet has a completely different worldview than you do. And they do not view the world through the lens of God and Jesus and the Bible. And suddenly your faith is challenged, your faith is tested, and your faith seems completely irrelevant to the world around you. And all of a sudden, the question becomes, do you believe? See, that's a different kind of challenge to your faith, isn't it? And then there's the the married and and just had your your first baby faith because they actually let you take a child home with you. And it's like, okay, are these people crazy or what? I mean, it's been more than 20 years since I first experienced that. But I still remember that feeling of leaving Crittenden Hospital. I mean, Autumn, you know, picture this. She's in this wheelchair being rolled through the hospital by one of the staff. She's holding Joe, um, who's been all tightly wrapped up in, in this swaddling blanket in her lap. And I'm following behind them, you know, carrying all these bags and flowers and balloons. And I mean, I remember distinctly, you know, strapping Joe into his car seat and Autumn and I getting into the front seats of the car and pulling out of the hospital driveway. I mean, we didn't even make it two blocks before we both looked at each other. And without saying a word, right, I just pulled off the road and Autumn immediately jumped out of the front seat, ran around, got in the back seat with Joe and kind of just, just held that car seat. I mean, it's it's harder to take a cell phone home than it is to bring a baby home from the hospital. It it was harder for me to convince an animal shelter to let me have a dog than it was for me to bring my sons home. And it doesn't matter who you are, right? Because everybody prays in that moment. I mean, you put your hazard lights on and you drive 15 miles an hour under the speed limit. You keep like 10 car lengths between you and the car in front of you. And in that moment, everyone prays. And in that moment, everyone asks questions about the future. And if my future will match my expectations, that's faith being challenged. And then there's you know the parents of teenager faith, which is a whole new level of faith. And there's the faith that comes with your son or your daughter getting their driver's license and then you watching them drive off by themselves for the very first time. There's the faith it takes to walk that son or daughter down an aisle. At different stages of life, our faith is tested in different ways. And at different stages of life, that testing, it feels different. But see, in many ways, it's kind of the same, isn't it? And then there's the tragedies that test our faith. There's watching your parents get older faith. There's getting through a divorce kind of faith. There's prodigal son and and prodigal daughter faith. There's getting through your parents' divorce kind of faith. There's the faith it takes for you to wait for your spouse at the hospital. There's the faith that it takes for you to come home from the funeral home by yourself. And in all these different circumstances of life, it's our faith that is stretched and stretched and stretched. And it's like, okay, how do I trust God when I don't have a job? How do I trust God when my kid doesn't get better? How do I trust God as a single parent? See, at all these different parts of life, different parts of Jesus' teaching, they mean something different to us. And at all the different ages and stages of life that, that we're in, but the common thread that we discover running through all of them 
is this understanding of whether or not we can trust our Heavenly Father. And so that leads us to this question, the reason that we're going to talk about this for the next several weeks. If, if faith is that important to God, and if you know, my faith and your faith specifically is that important to God, then, then what grows big faith? And maybe even more importantly, is there anything I can do to help grow my faith? And see, what makes this question a little bit challenging to answer is, you know, there is no you know, definitive list in the Bible. It's not like there's this list and if you do these five things, then suddenly you're going to have amazing faith. It's not like that. Growing faith is not a list that you do. But when we look at the life, uh, the life of Jesus, we do see a distinct pattern and a dynamic that develops around people who have big, deep faith. And so we want you to be aware of how faith grows, how God grows our faith, what transformation looks like, and, and what it means to be a follower of Jesus and how that happens. Because at every age and stage of life, there is a need for trust in God. It might look different, but the need is the same. And see, what's key to understand is that at every age and stage of life, each of these dynamics are present when faith is growing. The mix might be different, but each of them are present, and here's what they are. Being with Jesus, believing Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. That's it. It's not complicated, but it is the pursuit of a lifetime. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about this. And again, these aren't things that you just go out and do, right? I mean, you can't, you can't just go out and do believing Jesus, can you? Right? You can't just go out and do becoming like Jesus. No, these are things that you look back on. And you begin to see over time. But here's why it's so important for you to know and be familiar with this pattern, this dynamic. Because see, if you're a parent, you can help your kids get into environments where these dynamics are being experienced. If you personally are a follower of Jesus, you can get yourself and you can keep yourself in these environments where these dynamics are most able to be experienced. And see, once you're aware of these and someone asks you to serve or someone asks you to give or someone asks you to be a part of a mission team and you feel that almost instinctive response to resist because you're thinking, okay, wait, 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 I can't, I can't. I'm not ready. I'm uncomfortable. I don't have anything to offer. I mean, I am too busy. It's going to dawn on you. Maybe that's the point. Because see, I can't. And I'm not ready which means I am exactly where I need to be for God to do something to grow my faith. Because dependency, dependency always leads to intimacy. And intimacy is what leads to relationship. And that's what your Heavenly Father wants. And see, my heart's desire for you more than anything else is that you know your Heavenly Father, that you have an intimate connection with Him. And that you have, as we say all the time, a personal relationship with Jesus. And the thing that makes a relationship real is trust. It's faith. And seeing your faith grow is what I want for you. Now, to help you with this, during this series, we have a number of tools that we've put together for you that will help position you in an environment where you can experience these four dynamics during this time that we can't be together physically. Being with Jesus, believing Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. And during this time, 
We need to lean into our personal relationships with Jesus more than ever to grow. And so we want to provide you with, with the tools that you need to do this. And so we're going to give you a few options over these next several weeks in ways that can help you to grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. But, but please hear me say, I, I know that your lives are stressful right now. I mean, come on, you are surviving a pandemic. And by the way, you're doing a great job. And I know you probably don't feel like you are. But that's only because of all the rapid changes that are taking place. But listen, you are, you are. So do not grow weary and, and, and keep up the great work. And, and just maybe think about one of these that you would choose to participate in with us over these next several weeks. You can find out more information about each of these in the email that you received from me this past Friday. Or if you didn't get that email, just stick with us and I'm going to talk more about each of them in the moments after we close in our worship together today. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are our Heavenly Father. Father, that we can trust you even when we don't understand what's happening, even when we don't see you working. Father, we're reminded so much in Scripture about that truth and that promise. And Father, for each one of us, there are different times in life where that trust in you is challenged. And so, Father, I pray for those people today who are in the midst of that challenge right now, who are asking those questions of whether or not they can really trust you as their Heavenly Father. And Heavenly Father, I ask for us as a church that you would continue to grow our faith, that you would continue to be the one who is working to give us the faith that we need to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And Father, I ask and I pray that you would continue to use this church and use each one of us as we reach people with the good news of who Jesus is. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.